The Guardian. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, a £1 million fine for newspapers in breach of ethical standards, and a ban from the newswires for titles which refuse to sign up. Is this the future of press regulation? Plus, 8 out of 10 taxpayers have the hump with Jimmy Carr. We look back at a perfect storm which was no laughing matter for the Channel 4 man. And over the next hour in a co-production with the Norwich Council of Traders, I'll be going on a very emotional journey to discover who, why and what I am. A partridge pilgrimage or a partridge, a pilgrim partridge. We say aha to the return of Alan Partridge and talk Armando Iannucci OBE. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined for the first part of the show by Roy Greenslade, Guardian blogger and professor of journalism at City University London, among many other things. Roy, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Uh, There's no Leveson inquiry this week, but we've learnt more about what the future of press regulation may or may not look like. Yes, what one of our colleagues called a document dump, about uh, 20 submissions to the Leveson Inquiry about what should be done, the really practical stuff, as distinct from uh, people saying what's happened to them and so on. This is what people think should happen. And there are some pretty high-level submissions from the uh, uh, Press BOF, which is the Press Board of Finance, which lies behind the PCC, uh, from Lord Hunt, the current PCC chairman, from... Uh, the Daily Mail editor-in-chief, Paul Dacre, uh, and several other submissions, most notably from the Media Standards Trust, all of them offering uh, varying views, but at least uh, the most important thing is that we're getting a sense of what the current system of regulators and perhaps the industry itself, especially at national newspaper level, we're getting an idea of what they want Uh, And it would appear that what they want is another go at self-regulation, but in a very, very changed pattern. They wish to bind publishers in by contract. uh, And then if they breach the contract, it would be a matter of contract law of breaking a contract. um, And then they wish to ensure that people either obey the contract or at least sign up to it with a series of pretty stiff sanctions. And this is, uh, I think, an attempt to head off any sense of statutory regulation, but most importantly also even, uh, which is what other people seem to favour, some kind of statutory or state or parliamentary backup system. And you mentioned there sort of sanctions that... uh have uh, been recommended to uh, you know encourage publishers to to sort of join this contract and, and join this system of of, of self regulation and some of the, some of the most extreme sanctions were put forward by by Lord Black who's a uh, executive director of the Telegraph Media Group and, and he chairs Presspoff which you mentioned there what he suggested was it a, a, a one million pound fine for, for newspapers that that breach ethical standards and and newspapers and and publishers that that don't take part in this sort of self regulation. Um, uh, they could possibly, well, be banned from using the news wires. Is, 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 that, is that realistic? Uh, well, it's extraordinary. Yeah, well, let's take those two things uh, separately. Um, 
First of all, if you breach the code and you do it in such a fashion that it's really a blatant or very, very serious breach, then fines of up to a million. There would be uh, a lot of publishers who will be wondering about whether that's right. I, I happen to know at least one major national newspaper publisher who believes that that would be, in fact, inimicable to the concept of a free press, and they're probably uh, against it, although they've signed up at least for the moment to see where that goes. Um, I, I, I imagine that these fines would be considerably smaller than that in the end, but the very matter of introducing fines is controversial in itself. But the other matter you mentioned, which is if people don't sign up and don't come into the system, don't sign the contract, um, the range of sanctions there are really interesting. We, we know that there's one about whether or not your staff or the people working for you or whatever could obtain press cards. That is controversial. Does it mean locking out people from being able to go about their, their job as at present? Uh, or the other amazing one, of course, is, is this business you mentioned about not being able to receive copy from the Press Association and possibly the number of uh, freelance agencies across Britain who are part of something called the uh, National Association of uh, Press Associations, NAPA as it's called. Now, this would choke off uh, to any newspaper that refused to sign up uh, any link to um, stories across Britain and whether they could make that stick, whether the Press Association, which of course is technically owned by uh, all the newspapers, whether they could make that stick is a really interesting one. Most importantly, John, of course, whether any of this is a giant inhibition of press freedom and then what happens to all those people who will simply dig their feet in and refuse to take part? I'm thinking most notably of a number of bloggers, uh, famously Guido Fawkes, who's already, I see on his blog, um, lampooned these ideas, and um, that other wonderful publication, Private Eye. Um, I, I can't imagine Ian Hislop signing up to this. And, and the danger is, I think, in attempting to stave off statutory regulation, that you come up with a list of ideas as, as, as that you've just listed there, which which ends up sort of being a, a, a bigger danger, a, a different sort of danger, but a, 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 its own sort of threat in its own way to, to press freedom. I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, the press cards and not being able to use PA, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think that's the problem, isn't it? I think that in a desperate attempt to show willing, <clears throat> they may have gone much further than perhaps... Um, uh, anyone would really wish them to go. And I think that was always the danger. We are trying to appease politicians uh, at the, because in the end, this won't be Leveson's decision. Uh, he will make recommendations to Parliament. And you can imagine a number of MPs would be rather keen on many of these ideas. But whether or not, when we actually soberly reflect on the effect on our trade, on our industry, on our profession, on whatever one likes to call it, uh, we might wonder uh, whether this is going over the top. In fact, you know, uh, I, I reveal uh, to our listeners that I'm thinking of writing about whether or not I would urge papers to stay out of the system altogether, just simply raise their game, raise their standards, because they're going to have to fund this. Um, even the initial costing is $2.25 million. Uh, that's more than we pay for the uh, PCC at present. Uh, if a lot of people stay out, obviously the, each publisher will have to pay a great deal more. There are, I think, you know, I'm beginning to wonder now whether this path has been at all wise.
Okay, Roy, but, but separate, but very much related. We've had um, Leveson's not been sitting this week, but it doesn't mean to say we haven't had plenty of developments. A Mail on Sunday report claimed that Lord Justice Leveson had threatened to resign after the inquiry was criticised by Michael Gove. This was back in February. Leveson considered holding an emergency hearing, decided against it, but he did seek reassurances that the Cabinet uh, hadn't already made up its mind to uh, dismiss the, inclusions, uh, the conclusions of uh, his inquiry. W- what did you make of all this? I think the very fact that uh, Lord Justice Leveson has asked to see the reporter responsible for the story, which he clearly denies and is upset about, shows uh, a couple of things. Firstly, it suggests, I don't want to be overly critical of him because I've enjoyed watching him over the months, but it does suggest how thin-skinned he is, that um, he's not willing to put up with anything uh, uh, which in any way uh, impinges on, on either his standing and status or on the standing and status of the inquiry because he's made previous statements and complaints whenever things have been written which, with which he disagrees. Uh, this is rather touching in view of the job that he's trying to do and shows, in a sense, I suppose, um, the problems that he is confronted by um, in trying to tame the press, uh, and he's trying to do it himself. So it shows a certain, it, it shows that, but also I think it shows that um, as we move closer uh, to his decision-making and to the report that he will have to give to the Prime Minister in October, that he is aware that he could come in for some pretty heavy criticism from the very people uh, he is going to decide on how they're regulated. And I think he knows that much of the criticism, he was very upset about Kelvin McKenzie's address to the seminar right at the beginning of the process. He was none too happy about uh, comments by, I think, Paul Dacre at one point and uh, has been, you know, was pretty uh, down on Gove at at various points during his evidence. It it is clear, I think, to me that he knows he's on a hiding to nothing, (laughs) to be honest. Um, and, And he is very very keen uh, to show that he's an independent man, but also very keen about status, about showing that um, he, does, he wants Leveson, uh, the name Leveson, to come out of this um, shining and not to be lampooned as perhaps, in a sense, uh, David Calcott was 20 years ago in the um, inquiry and report which led to the setting up of the PCC. His fear that he expressed that uh, he didn't want the report ending up on the, the second shelf of a professor's um, study, I think, is, 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 would appear to be a very genuine one. Yes. I mean, I think that's his real problem, that he doesn't want to be another little footnote in history. He wants to make history. And I'm afraid, um, you know, that's a big ambition. And as you mentioned there, the Mail on Sunday's political editor, Simon Walters, is due at Leveson next week, along with, another, uh, along with a number of other uh, political editors. Roy Greenslade, thanks very much. I'm joined now for the second part of the show by Vicky Frost, Guardian TV editor, and Helen Zaltzman, one half of the Sony award-winning podcast, Answer Me This. Welcome both. Hello, John. Hello. First up, it's uh, everyone's favourite comic, uh, Jimmy Carr, a man who needs no introduction but might be in need of a career change after he apologised this week for a terrible error of judgement. No, nothing to do with his short-lived E4 series, Your Face or Mine. Uh, look it up, or uh, in second thoughts, don't bother. This is revelations that the so-called comedian avoids paying income tax by channeling £3.3 million a year. Is that all? Through a Jersey-based company, K2. 
no need to get into the, the finer details of the whole thing, but David Cameron, who uh, probably prefer, prefers Michael McIntyre to Jimmy Carr, described it as morally wrong, and Carr turned to Twitter, uh, where else, to make a, a grovelling apology. Something along the lines of, in case you didn't see it, I'm no longer involved in it and will in future conduct my financial affairs much more responsibly. Apologies to everyone. But no word on whether he'll be uh, refunding anything to the uh, the income tax man. Um, but Helen, what, what did you make of this? Uh, it was a, a outrageous scandal. Well, it was extraordinary, wasn't it, when David Cameron came on saying, morals, it's immoral, you think. Probably after all the Tory non-dom scandal, you should keep quiet yourself. I think um, I am in favour of the taxation system and tax being paid. I'm very unlikely ever to be in the position of Jimmy Carr of being a high earner and having presumably financial advice saying there are these legal loopholes and you'd be stupid not to take them because presumably that is what happened. Any financial advisor would say ring fence as much as possible and it's not illegal. So... Uh, you know, Jimmy Carr is not is probably not the highest earning person taking advantage of these. So why not just uh, take the Channel Islands out of the question, and then then it would be less of a problem. I don't know. Is that oversimplifying? It? He gave a he gave a sort of he gave a human face, didn't you, to a, a very complicated uh, front page story on the Times. Uh, Vicky, do you think he was? Um, did you have any degree of sympathy for the uh, the great man at all? I don't like Jimmy Carr, so I had no sympathy whatsoever. Even really. before this? Even before it. And I do think that did slightly play into this, that there are quite a lot of people who don't really like Jimmy Carr very much, and he is quite smug, and so he slightly came unstuck. And, you know, there was a slight element of that, I thought, in all the playing of it. I mean, my feeling is a bit Cameron sort of saying, well, this is a bit dodgy, that you shouldn't be doing this. It's, it's slightly like, well, you know, why don't you legislate against it then? Yeah. I mean, this is not, Jimmy Carr is not a case on his own. There are lots of people who are doing this, and it's very biz- it's bizarre, frankly, to centre for you know for David Cameron to be focusing on Jimmy Carr. It's bonkers. Yeah, well, also that's a comparatively small amount of money, not for any of us. And any normal person, three point three million a year is a lot, but compared to people that David Cameron knows who are possibly protecting their assets using similar wheezes. it seems odd to pick on Jimmy Carr particularly. Didn't they do take that the day after as well? The Times. Yes, and yet, why is so. no one banging on about take that? They must have earned a lot more in their careers than Jimmy Carr. Gary Barlow just received an OBE or the embarrassment of it all. Well, yeah. they yeah. didn't get a knighthood. Well, that's true. That's true. Maybe <laughs> that's why. Him, Maybe yeah. that's why. Uh, to, to root this in the serious media industry issues, Vicky, do you think this will have any impact on Jimmy Carr's career? Because I mean, uh, part of the point was that it was that you can sort of play the hypocrisy card, can't you? Because he's had a go at bankers for not paying tax. So that was almost like a public interest uh, defence. Should you have needed one? Yeah, I think there is a bit of that. You know, uh, he if you give it out, you've got to suck it up a little bit and you can't have a go at bankers for avoiding tax if you're doing exactly the same thing. But equally, I actually think comedians can come back from things like this. I mean, I think it's very uncomfortable for them for a while. If you look at sort of Angus Dayton and how he came back from all that cocaine business and, you know, uh, all that cocaine okay. business. <laughs> From when he was a kingpin. But, you know, and he sort of went back on the show, went back on Have I Got News For You and took all the abuse thrown at him and, and eventually sort of basically managed to bring it back round. And I imagine Jimmy Cole will do the same thing. Eventually, but he did have to... He, yes, he had to give up on Have I Got News For You, didn't he? Because it, it became he too became much. He became the joke. But yeah, the, the, I the, think the, with the, Angus Deaton, people were upset because he had a little kid and he'd been cheating. Whereas I'm not sure that the public, who are the people buying Jimmy Carr's DVDs and tickets to see him, are that bothered about financial affairs. Is that... I don't know. That's possibly unrealistic. 
I think you're right. I don't think we're going to see a situation where um, the, the millions of people who unaccountably go to his live shows are, are going to stop queuing up yeah. for tickets. The thing is, front page tax sensation news is not that exciting to the average person, I think. They want something a bit more sordid. Yeah, I think it gained traction because basically there's loads of sport on and not a great deal of entertainment yeah. at the moment. So it was a thing to grab hold of, wasn't it? So Euro 2012 is partly to blame. I blame uh, it for I'm... everything. <laughs> yes, so do I. Yeah, Absolutely. Stop ruining our entertainment, football. Well, if Jimmy Carr does need a change of career, uh, perhaps he could be the focus of a new arts channel being considered by the government. It would be the first permanent state-subsidised arts TV channel and an extension of The Space, a pop-up online TV channel, a joint £4.5 million venture between the BBC and the Arts Council, which began broadcasting last month. Culture Secretary Jeremy Hunt said it should be a permanent digital channel with live broadcast every night of our very finest cultural offerings. Helen, this poses all kinds of questions. Uh, firstly, do we want it? Uh, but what secondly, are our very finest cultural offerings? And who's deciding? Is it Jeremy Hunt himself doing the playlisting? Well, that is right. That's a question for the Arts Council. Uh, yeah, who's going to schedule them. it? Who's going to pay for it? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, isn't this the sort of thing that the BBC, specifically, you know, BBC Four, should be doing anyway? Yes, and yet everyone is saying, "Oh, get rid of BBC Four, even though it only costs about seven million a year." And I say only, again, that's a lot of money for me, but for a TV channel, it's not that much. For Jimmy Carr, is nothing. He could fund it himself. <laughs> Maybe that's the way he can get his way into people's good books. Like, I'll, I'll buy BBC Four and keep it going. Um, the Space is a really interesting project, I think. They've had lots of uh, curious stuff, like um, a live stream of a David Shrigley opera. You can browse John Peel's record collection as if you're actually in his room. I wonder how many people have actually been on it yet in the few weeks that it's been launched. It doesn't seem like, even though it seems like a project that a lot of attention has been paid to and a lot of care has gone into the creation of it, I wonder how much audience it actually has realistically and it might be more of a slow burn thing. Yeah, well, Vicky, well, I mean, with um, you know BBC4, as um, Helen said, you know, having a tough time of it and uh, Sky is pumping millions of pounds into Sky Arts. I don't know if they're particularly going to welcome a, a state-subsidised arts channel, which will be doing the sort of thing that you know it's trying to do. Uh, it feels very odd timing to me for that reason. I mean, I do think there's an argument for it in terms of... If there's something every night, uh, it, it kind of puts that direct, direct link in terms of broadcasting from the arts organisation to the viewer or the consumer at the other end um, with, without having to negotiate the broadcaster in between. And I think that's quite interesting in terms of what it says about how we want to schedule our own TV. We're, we're not so bothered about schedules anymore. You know, uh, it's interesting in terms of that control for the broadcaster. I can't help but wonder if there is some slight political motivation behind it because it feels to me like actually BBC4 are doing a very good job on arts at the moment. Sky Arts is also, you know, has put loads of money into its content recently and is really doing some good things. And do you want to see everything or actually do you want it to be curated for you to some extent at least by a broadcaster? I mean, I, I can't help but think, well, given that, you know, BBC4 is facing all these cuts, wouldn't it be more sensible to give BBC4 some more money to cover this better as it is an established arts broadcaster on digital TV rather than setting up effectively a rival to it. And I, I sort of, I, I don't understand, I, you know, I don't understand the politics behind it, but I, I'm slightly suspicious of them, I think. Vicky, you said there about the, the different way we consume media now. And um, Helen, you said the space it hasn't really made much of a splash, you suspect. Uh, despite the fact we all go, well, a lot of us go online now for content, it still feels like you need the, the sort of backbone, the backup of a, of, a, of a linear TV channel to really to give it some presence and, and awareness. Yeah, I suppose with the things that it feels like it's a bit edifying to watch, you might 
kind of need them placed in front of your eyes rather than actually seeking them out. There's this new channel that they're about to start up as well on uh, Freeview, which is going to be allegedly, the schedule will be decided by what's most popular on social media. It's the programmes that most people have liked on presumably 4OD and iPlayer and stuff. Oh, that seems good. very risky to me. Oh yeah, this is the, the channel for sort of shuffle channel, which um, which uh, kind of uh, finds out what people are watching and talking about and then uh, puts it back on the screen. So it's going to be 24-7 come down with me, which is... <laughs> Pretty much uh, Channel 4, isn't it? Yeah, it's more uh, 4, yeah. More 4. Right. There could be some very rogue combinations of programmes. It could be a lot of light and shade just in the same hour. Well, uh, one last word on the digital channel. Clearly, we're going to have to watch this space. Uh... See what I've done there. Forget about Mad Men. The show on Sky Atlantic that everyone's talking about is Steve Coogan's Alan Partridge. Welcome to the places of my life. And if you're not talking about it, well, then you should be. It's Partridge's Sky debut and part of a big night of programmes on Sky Atlantic on Monday that also includes a new sitcom written by and starring Kathy Burke and Armando Iannucci's much-anticipated Veep. Um, now, Vicky, I uh, heard you laughing this afternoon uh, and you had a pair of headphones on and you appeared to be watching a programme featuring Steve Coogan. So I'm guessing you've seen Alan Partridge. Is it any good? Yes, it is good. It's very good, actually. Um you know, you're always slightly worried, I think, about whether these things are going to come off. But I think the um, the Welcome to the Places of My Life programme is fantastic. Um, I think, actually, the closer Coogan gets to Alan Partridge's age, the more I sort of like him in that role, actually. I think he's sort of funnier in it. Um, and this is kind of interesting because it's sort of slightly set up as like part travelogue. And they have bits where they sort of pastiche ludicrous history programmes. And I think those areas are really ripe for satire and and no one's really done them properly. Uh, So he's very funny. And, you know, there's lines like, you know, these people might all look like retired pirates. And um, and he sort of says, the more I learn about Hitler, the more I dislike him. And, you know, it's all those really great Alan Partridge lines and it's just very watchable. And, And I like this idea of sort of Monday nights being comedy nights on Sky. Uh, I think Monday nights are very good, a very good night to choose because it is that sort of dead night, isn't it? And I think there is an argument about well, you know, Sky Atlantic have basically sort of rounded up uh, talent in a lot of places, you know, in a lot of ways. Maybe rounded up talent that other people have already developed. You know, Alan Partridge is a well-known character who's already out there. This isn't them sort of developing new. But I'm, you know, I think. The you know, I think they say that the idea is that maybe we start with Partridge and then they will start to try and develop other talent, perhaps. And it's interesting that uh, Partridge has been off screen for a very long time. It's uh, been on the internet in short sort of mm-hmm. short mini episodes. Uh, but it's interesting that Coogan chose to bring him back with Sky and uh, seems to reflect maybe a sense that um, I don't. Know, is it a sense of creative freedom that people seem to talk about when they go to Sky, or um, maybe it's the there. money? <laughs> I think there's got the money's part of it. Definitely, the money is part of it. But then you know, Sky will themselves very much stress that you know they don't believe in being too involved. They they want to let people get on with it. I mean which can obviously get you to two places, terribly self-indulgent, appalling stuff and really brilliant things that haven't been sort of, you know, uh, exec to death, if you like. So um, so it'll be really interesting to see how that goes. Um, and, and I think it does mean there will be a fairly high miss rate, but it might mean that the hits are really fantastic. Well, also, they are going for people that have form because you know, Coogan has been doing this character for 20 years and it still hasn't gone stale and rubbish. Armando Iannucci is very rarely 
even kind of as low as seven out of ten. And Kathy Burke, everyone likes Kathy Burke. So it seems like quite solid options for them to have plumped for. Um, I think certainly for this like sort of kicking off night, I think that's true. It's, it's almost safe in some ways, if you know. But then equally, you know, they've got this Julia Davis um, Hunderby coming, which is really risky. You know, it, it's bonkers. It's, you know, 18th, you know, sort of 19th century period uh, drama kind of bonkers comedy is is going to be really quite mad so I think there's I think there was sort of light and shade in that programming that we will see um, and we mentioned um, Armando Iannucci there who's the creator of Veep and has closely been involved in um, Alan Partridge going back to uh, 20 years I think back to the day to day he was at BAFTA on Wednesday night and this is what he had to say we were looking for something that gave us that access to not just to the White House but to the Senate to you know so that story wise we could go anywhere we're thinking, is it an ambassador? Is it a cabinet? Is it a congressman? Is it a governor? And then I thought, how about the vice president? But a vice president who came from the Senate, so had this past in which she was you know, reasonably influential and, and had run against the president uh, for the nomination, didn't win, but was chosen by him to be the number two, thinking that she was going to you know, gravitate towards a position of more influence, but actually discovering... There's less influence. It was not that there's less influence, but whatever influence you have is really at the, at the behest of the president. That's the thing about that job. It's you're so near and yet so far. Yet you could become, if he drops dead, you could be ruler of you know, America and beyond. But until then, you don't really know what you're doing. You, no. know, you don't know what your job is. It's entirely this tall, gangly guy from the West Wing comes over and tells you what you have to say that day. Helen, you were at the BAFTA screening, I believe. Yeah, get me. How exciting. So what did you make of it? Uh, I thought it was um, it was really great how they'd managed to capture the the tone of the thick of it, but transposed it very convincingly to it being American. So it wasn't just Americans doing the same jokes. It wasn't the same characters or anything. Yeah, I think it's really promising. It was only the first episode that I saw, but I thought there are going to be some long plot arcs that will be enjoyable to see unfurl over the series. How much can you enjoy as it's as a sort of standalone thing, and how much do you have to keep stopping yourself, sort of drawing comparisons with the thick of it, and trying to find oh, you know, where you, it's different? Yeah, then. I think you could uh, just watch it, never having seen the thick of it. Uh, and I think it's gone down pretty well in America already, hasn't it? And they, the thick of it was kind of buried in their scheduling with all the swearing beeped. Uh, so I'd imagine they went to it cold. Vicky, you saw an unbeat version, no doubt, as we'll get over here. Uh, what, what did you make of it? Better than the thick of it, or one episode in too early to say? Well, I've seen the first two actually. Ah. And, and I'll probably quite happily just go and watch the next two back to back in a minute, actually. Um, I love it. I think it's fantastic. Um, and it's interesting. It, yes, it's interesting that it does have that thick of it tone, but it manages not to ape it too mm. much. You don't feel like you're watching an American thick of it. You, you, you know, it's sort of obviously part of that same sort of canon, but it, it is different enough, I think. Um, and I really love uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus in it. Uh, she's fantastic. And it's great to see, uh, and her sort of her 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 aide Amy. It's kind of like you've got this great sort of female double act kind of right at the centre of it, which is fantastic. She's hilarious, um, and she I think she's what really keeps it all together. Actually, um, I, yeah, I'm I'm really keen to see more, and I think it's good. And it, I mean, it isn't as sweary as thick of it. it. I mean, it is uh, it is a wee bit sweary in places. But there's no Malcolm Tucker equivalent. No, and I think that's a good thing yeah. because I think if you did have a Malcolm, um, you know, equivalent, you'd just always be thinking, oh, well, this is just Malcolm, but he's American, and it is done slightly differently. You know, that kind of ambition in it is done 
differently. It's very central to it, and it, um, but it's done with a bit more subtlety and a bit more gloss, and yeah, it's great. And as a West Wing devotee, do you uh, do you sort of see any uh, you know similarities there, or, or or is it entirely redundant? Uh, no, I think I think you know if you I, I think if you're like basically if you're a West Wing fan, you're going to really love it. I think is you know it's that sort of thing. Also in the news this week, Ian Uchi came under fire for accepting an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours list. Alastair Campbell said he was joining the establishment he claims to deride and told him on Twitter that three letters could have more impact than he realised, to which Ianucci replied, WMD. Bam! Exactly. Got you, Alistair. Uh, and Alistair carried on tweeting, apparently, but everyone ignored him because that was very definitely the last word. Uh, well, Ianucci was asked about this by Richard Bacon at this week's BAFTA event. Let's hear what he had to say. Al- Alistair had this notion of me as being this kind of um, radical, anti-public school, going in, just really sticking it to... And I've never really seen myself... I don't care. I actually don't care what accent you have, how rich you are, how poor you are, uh, uh, where you come from, what your background... I really don't care. It's like what you do. If you're in public life, it's what you do with that public life. And... and uh, and whether you, you know, abuse the responsibilities that you might have. I actually think, you know, I, I have been part of the establishment for at least the last 10 years because I make shows that people watch. You're a part of the establishment because you have a show on every afternoon. If you affect public opinion, you know, whether you like it or not, you're part of the yeah. establishment. So it's, it's, it's what you do with that. So my only response to that is, is it depends what I do next, really. I will just make sure that what I do next is hopefully, you know, the best I can do. Who'd have thought that? Richard Bacon, part of the establishment. Uh, uh, Helen, what did you make of this criticism? Do you think it was, uh, did, uh, I hesitate to suggest Alistair Campbell had a point, but did, did you think it was fair? It's all a bit pointless, isn't it? I mean, firstly, it's exciting that a satirist could be recognised in this way. And secondly, I wonder whether there is any particularly impressive political gesture you can make by turning one down anymore. I'm not, I'm not sure that there is. And uh, I think as well, Alistair Campbell would be uh, wise not to take on some of the country's most foremost uh, comedy writers in Twitter battles. He's very unlikely to win on the zingers. What do you think, Vicky? Do you think it depends if um, Armando insists on having OBE after his name in the credits at the end of his shows? Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that'll be a step too far. But uh. Maybe he'll add it to his Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah. um, I do think there is a point in turning these things down, actually. Well, I wonder I'd... how many people would hear about it compared to those that you know have heard about uh, this now. But Well, but I don't think it's all about publicity. I think if you sort of say you're say you happen to be a Republican or anti-monarchy and you decide not to take it, I do think that is a fair point. And I think probably more people do that than we know. Um, So, yeah, I don't think it's a thing not to do. But, I mean, you know, equally, it's a personal choice, isn't it? I don't think you can say, well, you you write satire, therefore you must not take this honour. That doesn't make any sense at all. Yes, you've got to be able to recognise uh, satirists in uh, in one way or another. I mean, you know, Fred Goodwin turned his down famously, didn't he? Oh, no, hang on. I'm I'm confused there. I'm confused there. But, uh, yeah, I was quite surprised, actually, um, Helen, to hear him describe himself as part of the establishment for the last 10 years. I wouldn't necessarily have thought that of someone like uh, Ianucci. I suppose if he said... Oh, I'm I'm very alternative. Then people would say you've had shows on on BBC Two for ever, and, and that's true. I yeah. think you know if you are basically a BBC uh, program maker, then I I I think you sort of struggle to suggest that you are outside of the establishment, really. Okay, well on that uh, on that bombshell, um, Vicky Frost and Helen Zaltzman, thanks very much. That's it for this week. You can hear more of their interview with Armando Iannucci on BAFTA's own podcast, which is out on Monday. My thanks to Helen, Vicky, and of course Roy. 
You can leave your thoughts on anything and indeed everything you've heard on the blog or our Facebook wall. Alternatively, tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk was produced by Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.